talk more than I talk. Uh, it's going to be hard today because we're introducing a new book, and um, some of it is just research that I'm sure you don't have at your fingertips. And before Tuesday, I didn't have it at my fingertips either. Uh, and so some of it will be a, a little bit of an intro, and, and that makes it harder. But um, trying to save my voice as much as possible for the service uh, this morning. Uh, we're going to be in Malachi, Malachi chapter 1. We're going to read uh, into chapter 2, verse 9, and we'll see why as soon as we get started. Uh, but here we are. Uh, we're doing our study through the minor prophets, and we, we've just finished Amos a number of weeks ago. Uh, and now we are in Malachi, uh, not Micah, though I've been telling myself Micah all week. We are in Malachi, um, and we're looking at the bookends. Amos is the first of the writing prophets, and Malachi is the last of the writing prophets. Uh, and today we are really going to talk about a lot of the ways that Amos and Malachi are on completely different ends of the prophetic spectrum. Lots of differences uh, in style and form, uh, in situation, uh, in time, in, in the struggles that the people are dealing with. Um, and, and this is just wildly different in many ways from the situation that Amos was writing into. And I think this is a good orientating, orienting thought for us, um, that even though this, this is coming about 330 years after we left Amos, yet we are going to see that all along, uh, the Lord who speaks to his people through his prophets has not changed, nor has the people's spiritual need changed, their fundamental spiritual need, regardless of what they might think of their own situation. So what we're going to see as we read through Malachi is that God who represents himself and speaks to his people here, uh, he is the God who is utterly holy and will be regarded by his people at ho as holy. Uh, and he, he does not trifle with that. Uh, he doesn't say, well, you can, you can treat me uh, a little bit less than I deserve to be treated. No, the Lord is holy and he will be treated as such. Uh, he is also the God who cares about the poor and the oppressed, uh, and he's the God who comes to their defense. He's the God who cares deeply uh, about the purity and the truth of his people's worship. He is the God who is active and working in history to bring about his purposes, which is what we also saw in Amos. And he is the God who is utterly and completely committed to his covenant promises. So that was one of the big themes with Amos and what we were looking at with the, the prophets, the way that the Lord uh, is this covenant God, and he keeps covenant steadfast love forever uh, throughout all generations. Uh, and uh, that is what we have seen. That's what we'll continue to see, even though Malachi is coming and speaking into a, a much different situation uh, than Amos was. Uh, I think it's going to be helpful to, to wrestle with some of these implications after we read our text. Uh, so I'm going to open in prayer. And in order to help save my voice, I'd like to ask a few people to read. And if you would because most of us are working through the ESV. If you've got an ESV, I need two readers uh, to help me with this passage. Can I have two volunteers? I got Chris and Greg. Thank you. Now, Mike, you're on sabbatical. We won't make you read today. So, <laughs> um, And uh, let me pray, and then I'll, I'll give you the delineations, uh, and, and we'll walk through some of this. <coughs> Please pray with me. <coughs> Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you that you are the one who speaks to your people. We thank you that you are the one uh, who knows us. You know our situations. You know the, the many different uh, multivariant things that we deal with and wrestle with in our lives. You know uh, our struggles and the depths of our hearts and the ways that those manifest in many different ways, uh, just among the people who are sitting here today, and yet you know that you uh, and reconciliation and a relationship with you is our greatest need. And so we thank you for your electing love to call us to yourself. We thank you for your sovereign mercy uh, over us and to us to, uh, to wrestle us uh, to submission to yourself, to raise us to new life through the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the way that you're at work in us and for the sake of your own name. We pray that you would help us to see that, to rejoice in it today, uh, and to know you and to love you and to walk with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Chris, I'm going to ask you to begin the reading, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, um, and uh, follow, through, follow through to the end of, verse, uh, end of chapter 1. And Greg, why don't you take uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. So not the whole chapter, uh, but, but about halfway through. So Chris, chapter 1, 
And Greg, chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Go ahead, gentlemen. Thank you, gentlemen. Appreciate it. Uh, thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. So, 
the first thing you probably notice as you read through this, especially if you have an ESV or, or one of the modern, uh, more modern uh, English translations, is the style of it. I mean, just on, on a basic level, um, it's arranged in paragraphs, where, whereas uh, most of the prophetic literature that we're used to uh, is arranged poetically. Now, if you're reading the King James, or uh, I believe maybe the New American Standard, uh, still listed out in, in lines as poetry. And there is some debate as far as, uh, is this poetry, is it prose? And when you really examine the, the language, uh, Hebrew poetry typically runs on a, a series of parallel statements. Uh, one uh, over another, and, and they either add to it, or so the second line, the second of two parallel lines will add to the first, or, or contradict it, or, uh, or, or do something to it, and there, there's some relation. That, that's the, the unifying key of all, all Hebrew poetry is parallelism, and there's very little of that, actually. And so most scholars lay this out as, uh, as prose, just paragraphs, just the Lord is speaking. But what else do you notice uh, about this uh, this way that the Lord is speaking to his people that is maybe unique about Malachi. Chris. The Lord asks a lot of questions. Um, yeah, yes and no. Um, who, who is it that's asking the questions? And who is it that's asserting things? There are questions being asked. Yeah. Yeah. The Lord, the Lord says, uh, I have loved you. And then he says that. But you say. How? Yeah. Yeah. So there are questions here. And, and this is, the, um, this is the, the main format of Malachi. It runs throughout the whole of the book. And, and it's this disputation format. And really, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> The Lord is making statements. He's asserting things to the people, and he's saying, and here's the way you challenge me, and it's always a question. I've loved you. How have you loved us? You've polluted my altar. How have we polluted your altar? Uh, your hands are covered. How have we covered our hands in blood? The, the people are saying, prove it to us. Why don't you come down and just, just show us? I, I, I don't agree with you. And there is this, there's this questioning back and forth, and that's the overarching structure of Malachi. Chris? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 I assure you, I've never used this psychological tactic in a session meeting. Um, <laughs> Pastor, we want you to do. Why should I do that? Um, no, that, that's, a good, uh, that's a good point, and I think that, that is uh, partially, that's key to understanding Malachi, because uh, you know, the scholars go back and forth, like this first question, verse 2, I've loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Now, there is a way that believers can ask that question that is genuine and is seeking and is saying, Lord, reveal yourself to me, show me more of your love, show me how you've, you've loved me. Let me count the ways. And, and that's, that's a wonderful thing to do if it's asked uh, from a spirit of trying to draw near to the Lord. But I think you're right. And what we'll see as we go along is that these are, I like that phrase, questions of rebellion. How have you loved us? Really? T show us. Uh, and, and this is part of the, uh, the, the difference in situation that we'll see between Amos and Malachi, 
in Amos, the people are saying, God loves us. Man, look, look at all this stuff. Look at everything we've got. God loves us, and he is pleased with everything we're doing. Uh, and yet you've got these people in Malachi who are saying, do you even care about us anymore? Like, have you, have you just completely forgotten us? And a lot of it has to do with the differences of their situation, uh, the trials that they're facing, the, uh, the possessions that they have. The, the situation in Israel uh, at this time is vastly different than the situation in the northern kingdom before the Assyrian invasion. I mean, these are worlds apart. Uh, in some sense, the same people, the same general land, but just completely different situations. Dave, you're going to jump in there. Or at least that he uses Satan. Yeah, as a, as a tool. And, and, yeah, yes. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I like that connection to Job. And if you think about the end of Job when the Lord shows up, um, compare that to what's happening here. Um, I, I think uh, what we're seeing in Malachi and what we will see as we go through, yes, the Lord is coming in judgment. Yes, the Lord is coming with truth. Yes, yes, he is coming to reveal the ways that his people have sinned against him. But look at how he begins this, this statement. And it will end on a much better note even than, uh, than Amos. There is an uptick at the end, but there is... There is glorious and wonderful provision. Uh, yet as you read Malachi, you can't help uh, but sing the Messiah in your mind, um, uh, that the messenger will come, and, and all of these, these ideas. This is, this is trending in the direction of God revealing his Messiah yet again. Um, and, and there is something here. Yes, he's coming in judgment, but in Job, the Lord shows up and he says, gird your loins, and I'll question you, and you answer me. And I'll put you in your place. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I put the stars in the heavens? Where were you when I, you know, all of these other things? I will question you. And at the end, Job says, I, I lay my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once and twice, but I will not speak again. I, I heard of you with the hearing of my ear, but now my eye sees you and I despise myself in dust and ashes because the Lord shows up and he says, I'm going to question you. But look at God's patience with his people. He's allowing them to question him. And he doesn't show up and just say, that's it. You're, you're done. I, I'm not going to take it anymore. Uh, the Lord shows up in his very first statement. Uh, if you have uh, the King James is helpful uh, in chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, the word that modern translations translate as oracle. Uh, the King James will have as burden. The burden of the word of the Lord. This is a, a weight that's weighing on Malachi as he comes to the people. What is the burden of the Lord? I've loved you. I've loved you. I've loved you even though you sit there and you cross your arms and you say, how have you loved us? This is the first word that Malachi says to these people who are now reeling at the, at the other side of an exile who've just spent 70 years in Babylon and now about 100 very unproductive years back in the land of Israel, sitting around going, well, we're back here. When, when are things going to get better? And the Lord shows up, and the very first word out of his mouth is, I love you. I have loved you. I continue to love you. The, the force of the Hebrew is this continuous sort of, I'm going to keep on loving you. There's... There's nothing that can, can stand in the way of my choosing to love you. And that's actually what, what plays into the exchange between the Lord and his people. Now, we're getting a, a little bit uh, farther ahead, and I'm, I'm doing what I said I wouldn't do, and I'm getting too excited. Uh, so we'll, we'll calm down a little bit. But we've got this disputation, uh, and this is the, the major theme and the structure of Malachi. And there, actually, there are, there are six, six discernible 
uh, disputations in Malachi. Uh, the first one is this small chunk, uh, chapter 1, verses 1, uh, really 2 through 5. And then the rest of what we read is the second one. So the first disputation we read today is a question of love. Uh, secondly, uh, we read a question of the priesthood, or, or maybe a question of worship, but you notice the way the Lord is speaking to the priests and the way that the priests themselves have profaned the Lord's table and His altar. So it's a question of priesthood. Uh, and then it's a, a question of divorce, uh, chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. Uh, then it's a question of social justice, uh, chapter 2, verses, verse 17 through chapter 3, verse 5. Uh, the next one, beginning in chapter 3, verse 6, is a question of tithing. And then uh, halfway through chapter 3 and into chapter 4 is a question of honor. Uh, now, if you had that in front of you, which you may not, you may notice a chiastic structure, which makes me really, really happy. Um, at both sides, God is talking about his love uh, and the honor that's due to him. Uh, and then you, you move in the structure. If you're familiar with the chiastic structure, they, there are matching pairs that sort of build to a center. Um, and so there's God's, the love that he, he gives, his covenant love and the, and the covenant honor that he should have. And then there is uh, this, this priesthood and tithing and, and issues regarding the law and interpreting the law. And then in the middle, there is this question of, of marriage and, and violence in the household and social justice issues and oppression of the poor, and it's really uh, quite structured. Um, but don't get too excited, even though, like me, and, and Dave and I have had this conversation, if you look hard enough, you can find a chiasm anywhere. Um, but the, the reason the writers of Scripture use that uh, technique so often is that it helps you to memorize. In a time before you, you had access to God's Word, you could remember those pairs, and very often that's what you see. You see it in, in small statements, you see it in large statements, but that's what we're going to see uh, is this sort of descending pair uh, of all of these, these things. Now, um, despite the difference uh, between Malachi and some of the other prophets, uh, the opening is this classic opening, the, the oracle, the burden of the word of the Lord um, uh, to Israel by Malachi. Uh, here's a question. What do we know about Malachi? Exactly. Nothing. <laughs> uh, maybe. Uh, we know what it means, uh, and we might know if that's actually his name, and, and that's another debate. Is this just a title? Because the name Malachi means my messenger, uh, and it shows up in several places, most prominently at the end, chapter 3, behold, I will send my messenger before you. And this is the, the direction that Malachi is trending, uh, and it's a really fitting end to the Old Testament, by the way, uh, it is this anticipation of the Lord. Now, if you read a Hebrew Bible, uh, your Bible won't end in Malachi. It'll end in Second Chronicles, but that's beside the point. Uh, so the last of the writing prophets, um, they, they end in Malachi looking forward to the Lord, sending his messenger. And so scholars go back and forth. I, I can take it either way. Uh, and you can take it either way. And it's not going to affect uh, your interpretation either way. Maybe it's this man, whoever it was, this preacher in Israel, and he was God's messenger. Maybe there, there was actually this man who was named Malachi, which might be a shortened form of Malachi, the messenger of Yahweh. Um, who knows? But I think it's wonderful because it actually removes, we spent so much time trying to psychoanalyze the authors. And, you know, there, there's very little in Amos. We did a little bit of that, and I'm guilty of that. And we said, oh, he's, he's a shepherd, and he's a common man, and what, what's his angle, and what's his, uh, come on. Um, in Malachi, we are freed from all of that stuff, and we can simply say, what is the burden of God's word for his people? There is a, a pastor that I, I like, um, and he talks um, some sense. I think I might have quoted him before, but he talks some sense into young pastors who think much of themselves. He says, this is the way God works. He buries the messenger, and he carries on the message. And so you've got all these dead preachers and all of their sermons and whatever, and the kingdom keeps going forth. And this is what we find in Malachi. The word of the Lord by whoever. But he's his messenger. He's the, he's the man the Lord has chosen. It's the word the Lord will speak. And this is the way that the Lord shows up. Uh, and so the Lord is still speaking. This is, didn't we see this in Amos? The Lord doesn't do anything 
without revealing it to his prophets, he said. The Lord has roared from Zion, who will but fear? And 330 years later, God is still roaring, still revealing, still telling his people what he's doing in the world. This is the same God that we've seen, even though uh, it's much different. Now, let, let's consider uh, some of the time. Uh, I should have warned you, I'm not really planning to get through the text much further than chapter 1, verse 5, even though we read it. Um, uh, I know thyself, and I, and I know myself. Um, we're not going to get very far, <coughs> but that's okay. Um, <clears throat> we're talking about good things here. And um, let's, let's parse out some of what we know, uh, and I, I maybe have revealed my hand already, but some of what we know about the situation in which uh, Malachi wrote. We have to take this by inference because he also doesn't tell us much about that. He, he's not one of these prophets who says the word that the Lord revealed in the time of this king when that king was also the, that person and this thing. And uh, He doesn't triangulate when he's, he's saying all of these things. So we have to, we have to infer a little bit. Um, but we do have the Lord's. Uh, take a look at uh, chapter 1, verse 10. What a condemnation of false worship. Uh, and, and really, I think false worship might, might be one way to put it. Half-hearted worship would be a much better way to put it. Um, because we're not talking, in, in chapter 1, verse 10, we're not talking about what we saw uh, in Amos, where the people are up in the north, and they've got their own idols, and they're bowing down to them, and, and Kaya and your star good, and star god, and Sikath, your, you know, all these other... Uh, Moabite and, and, uh, and Canaanite goddess, gods and goddesses. This is in the temple of the Lord. Uh, this, is, this is what uh, we're inferring here, that there is a temple that's standing. The Lord calls it his altar. Uh, and what a condemnation of half-hearted, uh, yet practically orthodox. There are problems with, with the way that they're worshiping. But mostly orthodox worship, but really half-hearted. And the Lord says, I wish you'd just close the doors. <laughs> Don't... Would there be somebody just to shut the doors so that you would stop showing up and, and just going through the motions? That's not what the Lord is after. He's always after the heart of his people. Uh, so that's one of the things we're inferring. This, this is a time when the temple has been rebuilt. Uh, and, and set against that, he also talks about uh, taking these blind animals and offering them to your, uh, to your governor. You see that in verse 8. Present that to your governor. Uh, well, this is, this is indicating a time when Israel is ruled by someone else, when there are magistrates and governors set over them by the Persian Empire, this is, this is in the time when uh, the people are there, the, the temple's been rebuilt, and they still have a governor. Nehemiah, by the way, was the last governor uh, over the people, and so it's probably sometime before Nehemiah's ministry, and so we're, we're triangulating there a little bit. And in fact, a lot of the concerns that we'll see in, in Malachi uh, mirror the concerns that, that Nehemiah has. Some of the Concerns like uh, intermarriage with the nations uh, around them and the problem of the tithe being withheld from, from the Lord and from the priests and, and some of these uh, worship issues. And so we're talking that definitely about a, a post-exilic time in Israel. I think a good, um, a good guesstimate is, is about 430 B.C. If you remember, I, I don't think that anybody probably has it handy on them, but this, uh, this handout that I gave you, um, what are we talking about time-wise? Well, uh, 586, uh, the Babylonian exile began, uh, and 538 was the return from the exile. And so now, if, if Malachi really is writing about 430-ish, we're talking about 100 years that the people have been back in the land. What do you know about the time after the exile when they came back. What, what do you remember from reading Ezra, Nehemiah, uh, some of these other things? What was happening in the land at that time? Chris? Well, they came back to the land Yeah. 
I hope you heard what uh, Chris was saying about um, the Samaritans present in the land and the, the counter uh, to the, the presence of their syncretistic worship. Because this is one of the most fundamental things in understanding some of the earlier writing prophets uh, contrasted with some of the latter writing prophets. <coughs> Excuse me. And, and in fact, uh, the kind of Judaism that Jesus shows up into uh, in the time when, when he is born into the world, one of the prevailing things that you see in the earlier prophets is this proliferation everywhere of idols, actual, physical, formal idolatry. Um, uh, the, the Baals and the Ashtoreths and the, and the Asherah poles and all of these things. And you've got this, this pluralism uh, creeping in uh, and it was the downfall of the northern and southern kingdom. We saw that over and over again in Amos. And the Lord saying, look, don't, don't go to these other things. Don't go to Bethel where you set up your own idols. Return to me, says the Lord, and live. And the Lord chastises his people and he sends them away into exile. And believe it or not, at least in regards to formal idolatry, the people learned their lesson. And they came back, and they're all saying, we just spent two generations in a foreign land because we were mixing it up with the, the worship of the people around us. Well, we have to make sure that that doesn't happen again, and so we will guard against formal idolatry uh, to, the, to the death, and they did. Uh, there is, you know, when you read throughout the history of the, the Jews in between the Testaments, you, you read about the Maccabean Revolt uh, and, and through the Greek and the Seleucid period and then into the Roman period where everybody knew the Jews would rather die than burn their pinch of incense to your idol. They took it so seriously uh, that they would go to war, they would fight you tooth and nail and claw uh, so that they would not have to submit to any foreign idol. So this is a huge difference. And there is this pushback, and, and Chris mentioned this, legalism, um, the word scribe, which shows up in the New Testament gospel sometimes almost as an epithet uh, of, of, you know, these sort of, uh, these, you know, the no goods, the scribes and the Pharisees, right? Uh, that was a good thing at one point. It comes from the tradition of Ezra. Ezra was called Ezra the scribe. And the people went away into Babylon, and there were these scribes who were the keepers of the tradition while they were in a foreign land, and they, they're, they're dealing with differences in translation, and now they're speaking Aramaic instead of Hebrew, and, and yet there were these scribes who dutifully kept up the tradition of the Jews, and they came back into the land, and there's Ezra the scribe, and what's the most important thing? We're going to read God's word from morning until night, you're going to stand there and you're going to love it. And you're going to rejoice in it. And this is the word of the Lord. What a wonderful thing. And yet it, it becomes this legalistic impulse where, well, if we, can, if we can hold on to the word and we can interpret it just right, we can draw our fences around, here's what God requires and here's how much I have to do. And it becomes, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees who tithe mint and dill and cumin, because that's what the law said, and you neglect the weightier matters of the law. And so we're, we're in this transition period 100 years after they've come back, and, 
and Ezra and Nehemiah are coming on the scene, and already we're seeing some of this, this tension in the dynamic, and, and maybe the people are sitting there, and they're patting themselves on the back, and <laughs> at least we aren't bowing down to idols. Oh, really? Uh, oh, really? Um, tell me about that. Um, and they do have their own idols. They, they do have their own uh, legalism in the way that they're approaching some of these things. Good. And there's also... Um, do you remember the, the sort of spiritual depression of the people when they came back to the land? Or this is vastly different than uh, coming across the Jordan and conquering uh, Jericho and walking into the land where the Lord says, you're going to eat uh, from trees that you haven't tended and drink from vineyards that you haven't planted. You're going to live in cities that you haven't built. It's going to be wonderful. And they come back and the land is disheveled. It's been torn down. The Babylonians, uh, when they took everybody away, they left the poorest people in the land just to tend the vines and the vineyards just, just to the barest degree, just a subsistence level. And the thorns are everywhere. And I don't, I don't even want to talk about uh, backyards covered in ivy. But, but this is the idea. You, you come into this untended sort of situation. And here they are. It's vastly different than the first time they came into the promised land. And you have that situation, and there are actually a few other prophets. When the people come back, there's Haggai and there's Zechariah. <coughs> and in the midst of all of this depression, when they build the second temple and all the old men are weeping, oh, remember Solomon's temple, the men that could see it, and, and they're weeping because, you know, imagine, you know, uh, what is it, uh, Notre Dame. Uh, burns down. Imagine it were gone and they replaced it with one of these modern cinder block sort of boxes where people go in and, you know, that's, that's the effect uh, to some degree. And the people are there and they rebuild it and it's just not, just not what they expected. And there's this, this sort of depression. And then Haggai and Zechariah show up and Zechariah says the day is coming and the people will be really restored and there's going to be prosperity for Israel and the king's coming back and there, there's going to be uh, all of this judgment against the nations and we're a hundred years after that and the people are still going, uh, when? When? Because the nations are still assaulting them. They're still uh, under the hand of a governor. They're still you know, on, on the backs of somebody else. And when is this all going to show up? And so this is when the Lord shows up and he speaks to them. And, uh, and here we have uh, you know, the Lord coming in, in his presence, and, and this is the situation. I think those are most of my introductory comments, now that we're mostly done. And, and the Lord shows up, and he says, I've loved you, says the Lord. Uh, but you have, said, you have said, uh, how have you loved us? Um, what was it? What was it that uh, was the basis of this statement in verse 2? God says, I've loved you. Uh, and the people ask how, but let's ask why. Um, why has God loved this people? Ronnie? Wait a minute. Weren't they, weren't they lovely and wonderful? And weren't <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I, I think the, the, the wonderful parallel here, um, sorry, I cut you off, simply because he chose them uh, is exactly the answer. Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Ronnie, would you be so kind as to read that? Deuteronomy 7, and it's going to be verses, oh, the real nugget is in 7 and 8, but could you read that paragraph 6 through uh, 11? Yes, thank you.
Okay, thank you. I want you to notice a, a few things converging in that paragraph that Ronnie just read for us. First is the idea of, of God's uh, unmerited love. I didn't choose you because you were the most numerous, because you were the, the most glorious kingdom in all the world. <laughs> Quite the opposite. Uh, we, we read the Old Testament and we are uh, Israel-centric because God is kind of Israel-centric in the Old Testament. Um, but if you were a Persian during this time and somebody started to talk about the glory of Israel, you go, who? Oh, that, those tiny little people over by the, yeah, 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 they're, they're one of us, so we've got them. Any other nation at the time, you don't look, uh, and, and maybe at the height of Solomon and, and, uh, and the Queen of Sheba is coming and nations are coming and they're, they're seeing some of this, but that's a blip on the radar screen. The vast majority of the Old Testament, Israel is a nobody on the world scene, let's be honest. Yet the Lord says, I've loved you, I've chosen. So that's the other thing. I've loved you, and I've chosen you. And those two things go together. And they go together in Malachi. Um, that's the very next statement. They say, well, how have you loved us? And the Lord says, aren't, aren't Jacob and Esau brothers? Yet Israel have I loved, and, and Edom, Jacob, Esau, I've hated. And so there's this, this unconditional election. That is the, uh, the manifestation of God's love, that he would, he would choose them and predestine them. If you look in Ephesians chapter 1, <coughs> many of you know that I, I went to college as uh, an Arminian, and I went to a very Presbyterian uh, undergraduate school and had no idea uh, about uh, matters of doctrine like this. But I knew by the time I had to take some New Testament classes, some exegesis classes, that I didn't want to take Romans because they were going to quote Malachi in Romans chapter 9, verse 13, and I didn't want all that predestination stuff. So I thought I was safe. Instead of taking Romans, I took Ephesians. <laughs> in the very first chapter, uh, God loved us, set his love on us before the foundations of the world. And it's this... It's this confluence of his love and his electing grace, and, and those two are joined. And, and in that, that love and that choosing, the Lord says, also I've entered into covenant with you. Covenant with you, and this has some ramifications. It means that I will be generous to you, and I will be kind to you, and I'll set my love upon you throughout your generations. It's a covenant that cannot be revoked, even though uh, I, I will uh, chastise you for your sin, and that's part of the covenant blessing, by the way, if you can see it that way. Uh, but it also means that you've got to hold up uh, some things as well. Uh, notice verse 11 that Ronnie read, you shall therefore, let's bring it all to a head. I've loved you, I've chosen you, covenant uh, steadfastness and covenant love, and we're in a relationship together, and the Lord says, you shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. And then on the other side, the Lord says, yet those who despise me and hate me, I will repay them to their face by destroying them. Did you read what the Lord said about Edom in Malachi chapter 1? Hear it again. I've loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated. I've laid waste his hill country. I've left his heritage to jackals of the desert. And if Edom says we're shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, we'll rally. The Lord of hosts says they may rebuild, but I'll tear down. They will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. And so the people say, how have you loved us? And the Lord says, have I not made a distinction between you and between the other nations? Have I not called you to myself? We'll get there. Uh, have I not called you to myself? And have I not loved you and hated Esau? Yeah, Brian. Yeah, 
yeah, Israel is bubble boy. Uh, they're just there, and everything else is happening, and they're sitting in their, their little circle where, where things are maybe not, you know, fantastic. Uh, you know, everything, everything now is extreme. Uh, I brushed my teeth uh, this morning with Aquafresh. Extreme clean! Uh, and, and maybe, you know, everything in Israel isn't, man, this is extremely good. But the Lord's caring for you, and you have peace, and the Lord is protecting you, uh, and, and you, can, you can think of the same thing. You've seen that throughout history. I, I, thank you so much for that point. <laughs> sure, sure, uh, yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> but you see that, and you saw it before the, the exile, um, and all of the historians agree, here come the Assyrians, and if you see a map of the extension of the Assyrian Empire, there's a circle right there around Jerusalem because they never conquered it. They got everything else. And there were 186,000 troops outside the gates. And there's that statement in, uh, in Isaiah uh, chapter 39. And behold, the people woke up and there were all these dead bodies. <laughs> and the Lord sent them back. He said, no, no, no I, I'm, I'm protecting. Um, and we see that same thing. How have you loved us? Well, I've made a distinction between you. Um, and he's, he is punishing, by the way, Edom for their sins against his people. You, you should go back and read Obadiah. We saw some of this in Amos at the beginning. The Lord is, is, uh, is railing against the nations. He's saying this, you know, for three sins and for four, I will not revoke punishment. He, he deals with Edom, uh, and it was this, uh, this uh, sort of uh, pattern of behavior with their neighbors, their brothers, really, all the way back to, uh, to Esau and Jacob, uh, that when other raiding bands came against Israel, Edom said, hands off. And in fact, they, they sort of stood in Israel's way and like, oh, no, he, he fell. You can get that one. They, they tripped them up as much as they could. They cut off their escape route. They, they handed them over and, and just sort of, no, 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 we, we don't have anything to do with them. And, uh, and the Lord says, notice, I mean, this is, this is difficult language. They may build, but I will tear down. They will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Could you imagine that? Um, and yet here is, here is Israel, um, and they're rebuilding after exile, and Edom never rebuilds. Uh, they're gone from history. They're, they're, uh, they're wiped off the face of the earth. Um, and maybe they're scattered among, but they're never a nation. They're never a distinct people ever again. And the Lord has, has fulfilled this word. Okay, good. So we, we see this, um, and, and we see it in, in Deuteronomy, this idea of God making a distinction. Um, <laughs> how does the Lord show his love for us? We know, we know the verse, right? And I'm sure someone will quote it. God shows, us, uh, shows his love for us in this, in that, while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us, and this, again, is this electing love, this sort of not because you were, you were great or fancy or extremely good, um, but because I've loved you and I've sent Christ for you. So, so the ultimate uh, picture of God's love uh, is, uh, is in uh, his sending Christ to die for his elect children. And yet the people are sitting there in Israel, and they're saying, we're not sure of your love because we don't see it. And I think sometimes we struggle with that as well. So where are the places that we see God's love for us today that we can go, if we're ever tempted to do what Israel did and say, where, how have you loved us? Where do we see it? Chris?
that what we're saying to the computer is not being perfunctory about it. What we're saying we're looking for is delivery or whatever it is that that we're saying to it. You know, we're looking earnestly for it. It's it's those times in life where uh, you go from some usual act of of just chasing that you used to conform it to Christ's image. Whatever that happens to be, it's the you know the the steal the word from uh, John Piper. Just don't waste your food for nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that, that he gives us a clarity in, in those afflictions. And have you ever talked to somebody who is facing a situation like that, and, and the burden is not lessening, but you hear, hear them say something like, I just, I can't stop praying about this. Really? <laughs> I, I would love sometimes to have such a burden that I just I can't stop praying about it because prayer is one of the things that even for a pastor gets sort of, I've got a lot of things going on. There's nothing a blessing when the Lord, when he afflicts us in such a way that I, I just have to go and I have to pray and I have to. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Brian. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I think there's something to be said about that. Um, I don't know if I agree with your, your premise of, of the uh, implicit connection between Christianity and Western civilization. I, I don't know that I'm competent for that. <laughs> I mean, to be quite honest, uh, I haven't done the research. Um, uh, but yeah, absolutely, th this idea um, that the Lord has set eternity in the hearts of his people um, and, and this idea that he has made his people because of his grace and because of understanding who he is, he is the covenant steadfast God who keeps uh, loving kindness for generations. And we look at the Lord as the generation-loving God, and it's not just a, here's me and my little kingdom. And there is this, well, how can, how can I help my children to have a better life, a better society, a better, you know, lots of, lots of different things. Um, yeah, so he, he shows us his love in, in the way that he allows us to, to prosper in ways that we overlook um, because he's, he's shaping our hearts after him. Absolutely, yeah. Bill, how does the Lord love us? How does he show us his love? Yeah, so sometimes we don't recognize God's love and his kindness to us until we can look back and say, wow, that was, I, I wouldn't have gotten through that on my own. Uh, this is me every Sunday afternoon. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, it's, it's the hindsight that's twenty twenty and seeing God's love for us sometimes. I saw a hand in the back. Mike?
Yeah. Yeah, and, and that, that is that is like the most Presbyterian thing I've ever heard you say. <laughs> no, but it's, uh, yeah, that's, that's great. You know, here, here we are, and, and we really believe this. Uh, and I, I think there are a lot of Christians, um, and maybe at a different time in my life, I would say, are you guys crazy? That God is showing you his love for you in that he doesn't simply take away that sin. Higher life, better, better holiness now, sort of. There are a lot of believers that just don't get that. And if you get that, it's not because you are better uh, than these other nations and these other Christians. Um, but the Lord is, is showing us his grace to say, even in my weakness, my, my, his power is sufficient. Um, and his power is manifest in my weakness. And even that struggle re- resounds to his glory. Um, and at the end of all days, um, we will look back and say that not a single one of it was wasted. And all those temptations were on my account and my fault. And, and it was not that we say, oh, the Lord's tempting. And no, no, the Lord can't be tempted. He doesn't tempt. And yet he allows uh, his believers to go through all kinds of things that show us more and more our need for him. Thanks, Michael. Last word, Teresa. Yes. Yeah. So let's, let's have several more classes to discuss. That, that is a really big question. Let me, let me try to answer very quickly. Paul says um, in Romans that his calling and his election cannot be revoked. We know that. Um, the, the other question is, when we think of the chosen people, um, does the Bible intend for us to see all ethnic Jews in that same category? And I would say no. I would say that, that, that a good argument could be made from Romans chapter 11 that that's not the case, and Romans chapter 2 that that's not the case, especially uh, for no one is a Jew who is merely a Jew outwardly, but circumcision is a matter of the heart. And, and Paul is, is wrestling with that, and wrestling with that in Romans 11 where he says, I wish that I could even be accursed for the sake of them, my kinsmen according to the flesh. I think he's making a distinction between his, his election and their non-election to salvation. Um, however, in the distinction between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there are carryovers and there are differences. One of the differences is that the Lord chose a kingdom on earth through which to manifest his love and his covenant mercy. Many of those, I would say, were faithful Jews uh, and, and will be uh, and continue to be among the elect of God. I would not go so far as to say that every ethnic Jew is uh, eternally elect or will be finally saved. I, I hope I'm not speaking past the conversation. These are, these are really, really big issues. Uh, but to give you an example, um, we saw in Amos, and this will be the last uh, word. Uh, I'll, I'll have to paraphrase it because I can't find it, I'm sure. Um, it was at the end. I can't find it. Uh, but there was a phrase in Amos um, where he's talking about the remnant, and he talks about all the sinners among his people being uh, cast off, but the redeemed will be saved. The remnant will be yet, will be yet brought in. I think there is, even in the Old Testament, there is a distinction between national Israel um, and, and uh, the spiritual people of God. Unfortunately, I can't unpack the rest of that now. And if you want to talk about that more later, I'd love to do that. Let's follow up with that question. If anybody else wants to sit in and watch me sweat, you can do that. Um, so let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would prepare us to hear more of it during worship today. Uh, Give us your spirit that we would worship you in spirit and in truth, uh, and to your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.